0: Greetings, Princeps, and welcome to the 39th episode of the God Engine Cast, a podcast dedicated to discussing the Adeptus Titanicus war game produced by Games Workshop. In this week's show, we are going to be discussing the Legio Ignatum, the Fire Wasps. Before we get on to the show, let me just touch on a few things as usual. First of all, I have a survey sitting online. It is really important that I get as much feedback as possible about this show. I am working at this moment on what my topics are going to be for Season 3. I plan them out well ahead of time so I can find the necessary people to come on and talk in the show, and so I can start the preliminary research for the episodes. I have a whole pile of questions about what episodes work from this season, and what episodes you should be doing next season. If you can go to this questionnaire and give me your input, it'll be really, really useful and I appreciate it. In addition to that, here's my usual request for you to rate and review my show, to spread the word of my show to friends who may not have heard about me, and if you feel so inclined to visit my Ko-Fi page and buy me a coffee. I'm ko-fi slash enginecast. Again, the links are everywhere. So thank you for those who do. Okay, some podcast news. First of all, you will have noticed at the start of this podcast that I no longer say this is a weekly podcast. I think for the next three weeks you probably may get a weekly update. At least the next review on the Fire Wasps will come out next week. When the final show of the season comes out will depend on when I have time to get it done. It will be out before Christmas, so here in the next few weeks, but there may be a week break between the second part of the Legio review and my end of year review. And then moving into next year, into season three, um, the Gun Engine cast is going to become bi-weekly, which I mean coming out every other week. So most months there's going to be two podcasts a month. I've been looking at my statistics about, you know, how quickly it takes people to listen to my podcast and when shows get the most reviewed uh, watches. And other than the general peak of downloads I get to the day of release, uh, a show seems pretty steadily popular for the next two or three weeks after release. Um, which makes me believe that a lot of folk listening to this podcast aren't after the weekly content, and that it takes about two weeks for most of them to get around to listening to me, uh, which makes me think most folk have a bit of a backlog on podcasts. So I don't think I'm going to be doing a huge disservice to the listenership by just lowering my productivity slightly. It'll give me a bit of more free time to focus on my content a bit and not feel the drive to throw, you know, four hours of Titanicus content out a month. It's a lot of thinking, and it will just give me time to focus my field of view down a little bit. Let's just say I'm probably still going to be spending as much time podcasting as I do now, if not a little bit more, as I've just started a second podcast. It is called The Othercast, as it is my other podcast, it's U-V-V-E-R, and it focuses on orcs in the 41st millennium, or, to be honest, any point in the um, greater 40k... IP universe, I'm going to cover everything from Aeronautica Imperialis to actually Fandexes in the Horus Heresy. Um, It's not going to be a heavily rules-focused podcast. This one has a tendency to be, I talk much more about the lore and basically everything fun I get out of orcs. Its first episode should have just dropped by the time this uh, podcast is out, and uh, I'm expecting about a weekly update on that one. I've got a list of um, podcast subjects I want to get covered so I can get into the groove. Uh, I will say those first few episodes are going to be rough, a bit like the start of the God Engine cast was. I've got to find my voice with the orcs and to understand how I'm going to talk about them. Uh, The first episode is mostly me talking about who I am, and that second episode I've just finished recording is okay. Um, I don't think it's one of my best, and I'm going to be pretty critical about myself. But um, yeah, hopefully in a little bit we'll have another strong podcast, and it'll give me something different to talk about, um, which is going to be good. Anyway, let's focus on Titanicus now, because that's what this show is about. Now time for some Games Workshop news. I think we're just going to focus on the Engine Kill article to start with. Last week, as general, the uh, Engine Kill article dropped at the end of the month, and included some really nice pictures of the new Serastus Knight, upcroppers cropper's kit. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, yeah, anyway. The Knights themselves look like pretty faithful recreations of the standard 40k size ones, and I kind of like them. They have the same issue I had when I looked at the last set of Mechanicum Knights. There's just something about the paint scheme, especially the green and gold paint, that just makes the model's edges just look a little too soft. I think they're a little heavy on the edge highlighting, and it's just throwing my visual cues off a little. I'm sure these models are going to look fantastic on the tabletop. I've now actually seen some kits of the last round of Mechanicum knights, the Strix and co, and they actually look really good in person. Um, Photos from other angles sort of hide a lot of my criticisms I had with the kits. Yeah, these knights themselves look pretty good and the rules are fairly incredible. The Singularity Gravity Cannon is a 20-inch range, 3-inch blast strength 6 weapon which would be okay, but it becomes really fun the fact it has concussive. It's going to mess up plans left, right, and centre. And when you allow knight banners to combine firepower to plus up, push up their strength, theoretically, you could start seeing some really strong shots. Which is going to make the game very interesting. I think it's going to be highly unlikely that you see banners of four of these rocking around on every table. The models are just going to be too expensive. And, um... While that shouldn't be a game-balancing factor, I think for most communities, it is one we should think about when worried about how worried we are about a set of rules. I also think it's going to be a great way to get some actual firepower into knight lists that don't come from the knight for the murder turtles. Night households need more support, and this sort of a knight will be great for them. I am subtly worried about an appearance of four of them as a support banner to a titan maniple. I think some shenanigans can be pulled there. But, you know, that's going to be the nature of all expansions. As we give more power to knight households, which are a vital and fun part of our game, we do have to watch carefully what they do to the titan battle groups. And I think it may be beholden to event organizers to watch that more closely. And especially about whether they put restrictions on whether these Mechanicum knights can appear in a standard battle group with Titans. Yeah, I don't know. I'm kind of spitballing here. I need to see more of their rules. And that's actually one of my big problems with these new knights. I've seen some screenshots of the rules for the uh, latest round of um, Questorus that were put out. But... Not in necessarily the quality that I'm going to be able to make some judgment calls on it. And I think the same is going to be true with these new Knights of Rastus. I know what they do in theory, but it's not going to be quite the same of actually holding the rules card in front of me. And, yeah. I'm probably at some point going to have to go and buy the models myself just so I can look at the rules and have a copy. Um, Which is really annoying, I'm just going to say. It's it was slightly annoying when the first set came out and I get what they're trying to do and it's the same with the Warbringer. Like, I get they're trying to keep the rules and the models together without having to go and buy the rules separately but for those of us who are running events and those of us who are there to help make the hobby work for Games Workshop, um, like doing this podcast, but, like, it just becomes an extra step we've got to take and it's just annoying. Um, let alone the problems when you lose those rules, because I actually lost my Warbringer card, so I'm now having to try and track down a way to get a new one. I know I can buy them in the big box set with like all the other Titan terminals. I'm probably going to end up doing that here soon, but it's still just a pain. Anyway, that's the end of that rant, and I'll move on to some other news. The other piece of news that I wanted to mention is that I think it's worth anyone's time listening to this podcast to go and download the podcast from Games Workshop itself on Titanicus. The Warhammer Community podcast... Last week, did a great uh, review of the material they've done for Titanicus. Nick and Wade sat down and just talked Titanicus for an hour, and it was great. Uh, you can clearly tell that both these guys absolutely love the game. Um, they love it for all the same reasons I love it. Just the art, the size, the scale. It's just great. And just listen to it, and um, yeah, you'll get a it's a nice warming experience. Because at times, we, it can feel a little isolating playing titanic as as games workshop that you know we're the other box game that doesn't get talked about a huge amount so when you hear the actual staff talking about it in a way that you know you don't hear from their other games like they have this passion for it um it's really rewarding so go and take a listen to it and with that i think we will get on with the rest of the show Uh, i've got no community news or community questions to talk about in this week's show um a lot's going on at the moment in my own life the holidays are crazy, and Thanksgiving week's always just a mess. So um, I've probably missed piles of stuff. If you've got questions or stuff you want to ask me, please email and contact me. I'm god.engine.cast at gmail.com. You can reach out to me through Facebook or Instagram. Um, I'm usually pretty responsive, and we can get your feedback or even get your questions on the show. I've got two left to record, so there's plenty of time this year. And if not, they'll be there for next year. So let's say that and move on to the main section of the show. Okay, so let's move to the main section of the show. Today we are going to do a Legion review of the Legio Ignatum, the Fire Wasps. These are the Titans that I personally collect. So be warned, there is a lot of bias on this way. This week I'm going to do what I usually do and discuss the law and then the rules. And then I'll touch on hobbying. Usually this hobbying section is pretty hypothetical, obviously this time it's going to be a lot more actual on how I do things. Next week I have a conversation with a fellow hobbyist, another collector of Ignatum, and we all go into a lot of these details again, but from his slant and his point of views on things, my usual formula these days. So let's get on with it. Okay, so let's start talking about the law. I feel like I've been in this situation with the war for Ignatum before, where I know there's a lot of information out there, or at least I head off to start writing this section of the show, expecting to find mountains of information. I mean, they've been around forever. And then I don't find much at all. It puts me in a very similar experience to where I was when I was researching Ligio Volper. They have a lot of information on the surface, but once you crack it, there isn't much behind it. They've never had a deep dive in a 404 Black book. They've never really come up in any of the Imperial Armour books, both those places being place, uh, fountains of solid information about Elegio. They have appeared as primary characters, or at least secondary characters, in um, Aaron Dempsey Bowden's Master of Mankind, which is a conversation about the war in the web way. It's a really good book, and there will be a lot of spoilers to come, so yeah. They also have appear pretty front and centre in the audio drama Binary Succession, which was really fun, and, you know, the Titans really play a big role in that. And, again, I'll come to that in a bit. And they have had appearances in 40K books. The one probably most important to me is they appear in the Grey McNeil book, Storm of Iron, which is a really interesting book, and we will come to it at the end. Because uh, although it's not Horace Heresy, I think it's involved in the conversation, because... It is Horus heresy in many ways. Um, But what we've got is really from Crucible of Retribution, the latest Titanica sourcebook, and references to the Ignatum from other Legio write-ups. And from that, we've got an idea of who they are. So we'll cover that now. So back in the early days of the Age of Strife, Mars was being overrun by mutants and by hordes of giant Psy-Carvenorans. So, Titans were created to fight these things. And this led to the creation of three Titan legions. The Legio Ignatum, Legio Mortis, and Legio Tempestus. These were the founding Titan legions of everything. I'm going to talk a lot more about them in a section I've got in the final episode of the series. So, I'm going to leave the thoughts there. But anyway, they were on Mars, and they were one of the founding legions. And they fought for Mars through the entirety of the Age of Strife fighting with honor and basically being the loyal legion although things got a little heated with Mortis and Tempestus they never did they were always just there doing what they did and i think based on the reading of the tea leaves when the emperor came to Mars to form the imperium they were more than happy to join Terror, like there was there's a sense i get from reading the lore that they were very pro-Martian unity with terror. They wanted to unite the Imperium. Because very quickly we get references to titans that have been blessed by the Emperor. Titans that were fighting at the Emperor's side. Titans that were being deployed to planets to guard places alongside the custodians. They very quickly slipped into this place of being the guardians of the Emperor's most precious things. With one notable exception. Exception. And again, that's something we need to talk about way down the road. So anyway, by the time we get to the Horus Heresy, there was never any question these guys were going to be the Loyalists and become the bastion of the College Titanica on the side of the Imperium. In fact, when you look to the 41st Millennium, they are the Titan Legion, the only Titan Legion, that's allowed to be deployed on Terra, guarding the Emperor's Throne World. There are two Ignatum Warhound Titans Standing in the Imperial Palace, guarding the Eternity Gate, right by the Emperor's side. They are the custodians. They are the other weapon that the Emperor has at his left hand. Um And that's really key. Like, that's the general theme we get from reading the backstory. They are there. They are defending and guarding. And sadly, that's like the key lore we've got. You do any research into the Legion of and that's the information you find. You find out that they're there everywhere, they're guarding stuff, da-da-da-da, and mostly it ends up being back to they are guarding the Imperial Palace. That's where, That's the bit of lore that comes up the most in all the books, that there are these two warhounds standing there in guard in the 41st millennium, and that they've been there, yeah. So we need to look past that, and how to do that is actually pretty difficult. Now I've got some rampant speculation that I'm going to engage in in a bit, but we can look through where they've ref- where they are referenced in the source material. So we're just going to go through the engagements in order, uh, the ones I've been able to find. If you know of others, please message me and let me know. And I think that's probably the best way we really dissect what's going on in their lore. So first up, there is a reference to them working with the Dark Angels on the planet of Sherosh. In this one, the planet is conquered and subdued by the Dark Angels, and then the Legion is brought in to crush any resistance to establish A frontline defence on the planet. It's interesting. It's generally not how the Titan Legions are used. Generally, they come in with the first wave as part of the big assault. They're massive war machines. They bring absolute Armageddon to the battlefield. They aren't used to subdue resistance. But the Legion of was. Maybe it's because the Dark Angels also unleash Hell on Worlds. And yeah, after them, it's a downgrade to bring Titans in. To me, it kind of indicates perhaps they wanted to defend the world. So they brought in some defense assets, which are some titans. Okay, that makes a bit of sense. And, but to be honest, and that's it. That's our real one reference that we've got for stuff that happened before the Horus Heresy, other than the stuff that happened way back in the founding of the Legio. The next time they mentioned are in the Mechanicum book with the Schism of Mars. And in that case, there's a conversation about the Fire Moths. Ed, note, yes, I just said Fire Moths. So when I was recording this episode, I kept wanting to call the Juin Carnum the Fire Moths. It happened so much, and I've edited most of them out, but cases like this one seem to have slipped through. So you have my apologies, and I hope you understand what I'm saying fighting a titan legion known as the burning stars there's no actual high gothic name for them given and they fought in a bloody close combat fight um and neither could gain advantages and after the first night of fighting during the um, death of innocence both sides uh withdrew got ready for future fighting as the Civil War on the planet raged, which presumes they carry on fighting all the way through the Horus Heresy until the Scouring. It's never really clear, Um, though I think there's good evidence to presume that some Titans got off the planet. The next time they're really mentioned in chronological order is the events in Emperor of Mankind, where a series of Ignotum Titans are disassembled in the Imperial Palace, moved very carefully through some doors that won't never fit a titan and reassembled in the webway so they could be used to fight the onrushing demons and traitors that were trying to make entry into terror that way. Um, the entire mana that was sent through were destroyed in the webway but there were some real fierce battles. They clearly were sent down with the aim of trying to fight the way to Mars. Now an interesting thing that happens during the war in the webway is that There is a faction within the Mechanicum that tries to betray the Emperor. They basically give up on Terra to try and get their stuff to Mars, to help free Mars from the uh, Dark Mechanicum. And when that order is given by their giant war machine robot of death, the Ignatum Titans ignore the order. They are committed to the defense of Terra. They are committed to the defense of the Imperium. And don't care. Even the Titan souls don't care about home. I mean, they do. They want to go back to Mars. They fear it in their heart. You can see that in the other writing. But they are committed to their defence, and they're committed to the Imperium, which I think says a lot. Next up is the events of the audio drama Binary Succession. Now, there isn't a clear position of date, so this could theoretically occur before the Emperor of Mankind. Uh, But I feel this book is a prequel story to the battles at Beta Garmin, more than the uh, events of what was going on during the st- stuff in master of mankind so i think the chronology is the other way around um i think that's born out when they the books were published in hard form now i think the aud- audio drama came out before master of mankind in a actual chronological sense so a bit of variation there the binary succession is about an hour and a half long audio drama that is now a short story in one of the uh, compilation books. But it focuses on the story of the politics about the creation of the Adeptus Mechanicus and the Adeptus Titanicus. Um, it's really interesting to read. I'm not going to go into the full details. Listen to it. It's really good. But basically, the plot resolves around the idea that at the start of the story, the High Laws of Terrorists have started worrying about all of the Titans showing up on Terra. Like, there has been a great recall ordered, and all these Titan legions are appearing everywhere on terror, and the Imperial Palace is being slowly crowded out by princeps just wandering around, waiting for orders. And no one's quite sure at the same time who these guys owe authority to. So the ambassador to uh, the High Lords from Mechanicum seeks to rectify the binary succession, and she sits down with a plan and that's not very well received, and ends up going through series of arguments and a series of assassination attempts and such, such like, and eventually the entire matter is resolved when the Legio Ignatum literally march an Imperator Titan through the walls of Terra, or over the walls, and end up a step away from crushing the High Lords of Terra themselves. It is fantastic. In the audio drama, you've got the war horn going, you've got the politics yelling between the boot steps of, or the footfalls of the Imperator to Titan. It talks about the revving up of all this weaponry and it preparing just to go to war. And, like, the Imperial Palace has no protection. None of the other Titan legions are going to stop it. And none of the wall mountings that has been building can do anything to it. So even the custodians are sitting there trying to train guns on it and work out what they're going to do. And it just stomps straightforward, non-caring. I'm going to destroy the heart of the Imperium because they won't resolve this problem. And... It is magnificent. Um, In my mind, this is the only time the Imperial Palace has been successfully attacked. Uh, the Legio Incnatum hold the record for the best invasion of the Imperial Palace. Legio Incnatum one. Horus, zero. Anyway. Um, um, and it's all cool. Um, really good story, and there's a lot of like deep thoughts from a lot of the princeps. You don't see inside the heads, but you hear the conversation. And you get the idea that the members of the Legio Incarnatum are very uh, militaristic, well-drilled, and willing to do the job that needs to be done. Um, Which sort of stands them slightly apart from the interactions we've had from Legio Tempestus and Legio Mortis. Although they all have that very militaristic style, I mean, these are military units, uh, you get the difference from Legio Tempestus and Legio Mortis that they aren't, as concerned about the politics. They will just get things done. Again, it's like, what's the difference between the Son of Horus and the Imperial Fist? You know, it's very minor, but there is one. Okay, so after the fun of the Binary Succession and the it being resolved, and now we've got all these titans just loitering around Terra. People panic, and Sanguinius decides the best plan forward is to send all the titans to the Beta Gamma Cluster to try and drain resources from the oncoming force of the Warmaster. That is the Titan death Geth campaign. I talked about it a lot in the last couple of episodes, because Ligio Volpa are front and center there. Ligio Ignatum are sent. We see references to them in the Titan Death book by Black Library and the Titan Death book by Games Workshop Prime for the Titanicus book. We know they go. We know they're deployed to the planet. But other than their appearance actually in the Battle of... Um, which is Titan Death itself, um, we don't see their appearance much. So it's presumed they're fighting in places that aren't the focus of the narrative. Um, that said, they are still present on Terra by the time we get to... The Siege of Terror, they have had references made to them so far in several of the Siege of Terror books, though none of their engines have made it to war yet. Um, And we know from other sources that they will play a front and centre place in the final battles, or we should do. One of those sources of information is a fantastic book, as I said earlier, The Storm of Iron, and I think we need to discuss that now, even though it is outside the realm of the usual horror heresy. So in 2002, a book was released uh, called The Storm of Iron. Uh, in real overview, it is basically a story of the evolution of a character called Honsu, who is a antagonist in the Ultramarine series uh, by Graham McNeil. He is a horrible chaos space marine, um, huge twirly moustache villain, and this is basically his origins, and it's a really good read, a really good Iron Warrior siege. I love it. I'm a fan of the Iron Warriors. Um, and it resolves a lot of threads from the Horus Heresy. A lot of the people fighting there are veterans of the Horus Heresy, so a lot of those characters have been picked up and reused in the Horus Heresy books that were written later. But we're here to talk about the Legio Ignatum. They were also deployed to this fortress to protect against this oncoming attack, or just to defend it against whoever showed up. The fortification was holding a whole pile of gene seed that Abaddon the Despoiler wanted so he could make more legionnaires for his giant invasion in the 13th Black Crusade. Um, so, help with the invasion, the Iron Warriors brought along the Legio Mortis, the dark, corrupted engines that they were by the time we get to the 41st millennium. One of these titans was the severely corrupted Imperator, uh, dres Era, that eventually meets its demise in this story. Um, it is killed in close crazy fighting with two warlord titans of legio ignatum one of which is able to get a power claw through a previously exposed wound and rips out its plasma core Uh, despite that everyone all the ignatum titans die all the mortis titans die and all their explosions leave a giant wall opening that allow the Aeon warriors to break the siege but before we get to that point there is actually a lot of conversation from members of the legio ignatum talking to the members of the imperial fists who show up to help defend and the imperials defending the walls it's all very interesting you get a lot of their mindset which is probably one of the one of the few places we have to actually see the legio ignatum guys actually talk and plan we don't get any of that from legio mortis legio mortis by this point are dark and corrupted so all the titan fighting sequences are done from ignatum's point of view it's from this where we get the Ligio mo- motto, and I'm not going to butcher the Latin. I'm just going to say what the Logothic version is, which is I will either find a way or I shall make one, which is pretty awesome. Uh, we don't have many Ligio mottos out there, and it's a pretty good one, and I've used it many times myself in game. But through conversation in the book, we know that the Ligio Mortis and Ligio Ignatum fought on the walls of the Imperial Palace at the closing of the Siege of Terror, and they've been hunting for the Ligio Mortis for the longest time because they want retribution. And they're out to get it in this battle. They're out to destroy those Titans that got away from them in the scouring. And they're very happy to have this fight and very dedicated to get it done, willing to sell their lives to do so. And that's that. I mean, it's a really good story. And you see, like I said, a lot from their insight. They're all about defense, but they aren't they're more than willing to go and punch someone in the face when they get too close. Which is kind of how the legio ignatum seemed to work okay with all that said i'm do a very quick overview of what i think like the lore is from my angle this includes some rampant speculation this is why i've sort of put it back down here so when the emperor made it to mars and united Terra and the mechanicum to form the imperium he looked at the titan legions and goes i like those guys i like the cut of their jib the fire wasps they're with me and the key word there is the fire wasp Namely, the wasp. The wasp aspect of the Titan Legion is apparent wherever you look. They are a defensive creature, a wasp is, which will attack very viciously when provoked. But generally, you can let one fly around your room with no real worry. And the same is true effectively of the Legio Ignatum. They will happily sit and gut and defend the walls wherever they've been positioned by the Emperor though, when you come along to look to do something to them, they're going to sting back and kick you pretty hard. Yeah, mixing the metaphors, but whatever. Anyway, so the Emperor takes them and uses them to deploy wherever he needs the heavy support for his custodians, because he knows his custodians need some big firepower, and that's what the legio provide. Now, the legio are massive, so they are sent to other places, and they are sent out on Crusade as well. Though again, generally, with specific engines designed to do objectives probably directly from the hands of the Emperor. We know custodians were sent out during the Crusade as well, and I reckon that tied together. If we go into the stories that are published in the future, I would think that theme's going to be carried through. It's just the general sense I get, which is why you see their deployment in the web way and such. They are that faction of the Mechanicum that owes their loyalty to the Emperor more to the idea of Mars. It's very important because I think it reflects on a lot of themes and a few ideas we're going to explore here in a bit. But I also really like the analogy to the Wasp. I think it's very easy to miss that, you know, the other founding Titan Legions were a lot more aggressive. The Legion Mortis and Legio Tempestus both are incredibly aggressive, invading, and, like, the type of t- Titan Legion you want to just send out on Crusade and just let them get stuff done. The Fire Moth Wasps are more the Titan Legion you will just sort of put somewhere and let them secure a region. And it was very important in that initial trilogy, you know, the trio, that you know they had a place. And we'll talk about that more in a future episode. But now let's get over and actually talk about the rules, because uh, we've been getting on a bit. So the rules for the Legion are found in Crucible of Retribution. They're finally here. They have one page of artwork also in this book, which I will discuss later in the hobby side. The rules for the titan legion i think are pretty strong they have one four traits as per usual one single trait two stratagems and one piece of war gear um usually this to me is a warning sign uh usually when a titan legio's rules are more stratagem based i think the chance of you seeing those rules in action are less but they have a very strong personal trait so we're going to look at that first So the Legio trait is called We Loyal Few. Considering themselves the last remaining t- true titans of Mars, the Fire Wasps holds a deep loathing of those traitor titans that renounced their oaths and sided with the War Master. Mechanically, this means that if a Legio Ignatum titan is within 12 inches of an enemy titan when making an attack in the combat phase, they may reroll ones to hit. Hmm... This is really interesting. There are a couple of provisos you need to look at there. One, it is in the combat phase. I think this cannot be understated as much. This only affects the attacks you make in that latter part of the turn. There are a lot of ways in Titanicus to attack out of sequence, and this benefit has no help to those particular shenanigans. Also, the 12-inch range. It's not short range. It's not short range on a weapon. It is a distinct 12 inch band. It doesn't change depending on your titan size or mission type. It is just a standard zone of engagement, which has an effect as we look through its usability across the rules. I'm going to get way deep into this next week, um, but I actually think this rule is really good. Getting within 12 inches of an enemy Titan happens a fair bit. And the ability to re-roll ones to hit, any number of ones to hit, is really good. As I've continually said, and it's continually said around the community, re-rolls in Titanicus are really hard to find. and Inconatum has so many now. You take a weapon with a lot of dice, you are going to be re-rolling one in six dice. Because one in six chance of you rolling one. Um... Yeah, uh, your chance of missing goes down dramatically, especially with most titans having a ballistic skill of 3+. On Planet Bowling Ball games, you get within 12 inches, you you have a superior advantage against any other titan legio out there. Um, It is really good. And as they are to hit rolls, they aren't just limited to shooting. I think it actually makes you better in close combat, like, you know, combat weapon, power fists, chain fists, than the upgrades Legion Volpa get. Legion Volpa get plus one to hit in weapon skill range. And I think I would sit down and do the math and providing you've armed yourselves with close combat weapons, so chain fists and the power fists, I would rather have rerolls ones than a plus one to hit. On a chain fist, a Ligio Incarnatum Titan is gonna be more accurate than a Legio Volpa Titan. Legio Volpa Titan will be hitting on a two plus. Most Legio Ignatum Titans will also be hitting on a 2, plus, but re rolling that roll of a 1, which is really good. So, yeah, it's a really good little trait. Uh, very powerful, very usable, will be usable in nearly every game. You know, if there's not a game you aren't shooting at an opponent, yeah, you've done something right. As for the 12 inch limitation on it, I think it's only really a concern for warlords. Warlords obviously come with a lot of weaponry, but at least one third of their weaponry is on Carpe's mountings. They can't be targeted at things within, effectively, nine inches of them, unless you're attacking another Warlord. So, unless, unless you know your opponent is running just Warlords, the Ignatum Warlord isn't as good as, say, a Reaver because they won't be getting as many re-rolls of wands. And it's a shame, because the best way to get the most out of this trait is with weapon systems that give you lots of dice. And on a Warlord, all the multiple dice weapons, or the buckets of dice weapons, are all Carpe's weaponry. So, yeah, its potential of awesomeness is less on a Warlord than it would be on, say, a Reaver. I think this rule comes to town immensely on Reavers, where really only knights and warhounds have a way to get in too close to you and deprive you of those additional rerolls on your car pace weaponry, or deprive you of the car pace weaponry in general. But as I said, if you're that close, in all likelihood, or you've got an okay chance of having a reaver with one of the better combat weapons, in which case you're just going to rip them up in um, melee range, which is really nice. So yeah. Very solid rule. Um, I don't think... I'm not sure I'd go out of the way and say it's the best rule in the game. But it's very versatile. And, um, yeah. I think it's a weird rule that will get in your opponent's head. And it may force your opponent to keep away from you. Which means you've suddenly got a sort of zone of control being put out by your titans. You can really start pushing your opponent around if they choose to try and not let you use your trait. Which is as powerful as several of the other traits of other Legios. Um, Any rule that has a chance of getting in your opponent's head, or making your opponent worry, or to try and outthink you in weird ways, is a good thing, and I think that's where this rule really is going to see a lot of play. Um, If I'm fighting against Legio Incarnum, my advice is to ignore this rule and just do what you would do normally. Uh, I think it's going to be very easy to over-analyze the battlefield because of this rule's existence, um, for your loss, sadly. Next up is the Legio stratagem Punish Their Folly. Possessed of an abiding hatred for the traitor Titan legions, the Fire Wasps were quick to adopt their tactics to exploit the traitor's apparent lust for blood, formulating overlapping fields of fire to punish their over-eagerness. It's a one-point stratagem, and for that it allows you to shoot with a weapon without a melee trait if someone charges you. I love this stratagem. At one point there is no reason not to take it any time you play Ignatum. Now, you are going to be firing outside of your usual order, so you won't get the trait of allowing you to reroll to hit, and it does limit you to only using actual guns. But it does let you use your ballistic skill, so you're going to be talking about pretty high, accurately choos- high accurate shooting. And if they happen to finish within two inches of you, they don't get void shields. So you run up and stand too close to a warlord, you could be getting a torrent of plasma in your face. Which, a worst case scenario, could kill you. But maybe they'll be kind and just, you know, target shoot your close combat weapons off you, to mean you're going to be basically ineffective on your shots. I like it. The downside is that it's only one stratagem. You can't take it multiple times. So you've got one shot to make it work in the game. You've got to play your card right carefully. It may not be best to use it the first time you get charged, especially if you're playing an opponent with a lot of charging titans. Knowing when to use it and when to not use it is going to be the art form with this stratagem. It has the potential of being very powerful but it's probably very easy to use at the wrong moment, and there are things opposing players can do to negate its effect. Throwing in a blind barrage or something could really scupper your plans against the right opponent. Um, yeah, but it's there, and I think it adds an it's a nice benefit to the legion. It would be very easy to make it too powerful. And just having it as that single game ability balances things. Next up is the stratagem Guard the Gates. It's a two-point stratagem. Loyal to a fault, the Fire Wasps were often chosen to guard key worlds. In certain knowledge, they would never abandon their duty. So this stratagem is really interesting. It's played at the start of the first turn... And for the duration of that turn, you do not have to make an order check to switch a titan to first fire mode. Obviously, first fire means your titans aren't going to move, so they're going to move up the table to get into that lovely 12-inch range band. But it also means that any titan you want can suddenly be on first fire. Now, there is a little bit of debate, as there is a language issue, which it doesn't really state, is if you play the stratagem on the first turn, can you do first fire for free for the entire game? That's the case. This is a ridiculously under overpowered card and should be at least a three or even a four point stratagem as first fire is very powerful, especially in the latter part of the game where you could move up and start stacking your bonuses with those loyal few. I think as it stands, that it is only useful in that first turn is rather interesting. I've heard a lot of negative speaking where people you know, you talk about not wanting to first fire in that first turn, but I don't know. That first turn... I have a tendency to set up a Titan, usually my last Titan down, that usually wants to first fire. It shows up armed with the Volcano Cannons and the Apocalypse Missile Launcher, and will generally try and take out a weak target. It really enjoys picking off enemy knights. I mean, the enemy deploys some Murder Turtles out in a good fire arc, you know, the position where they can start first firing from the first turn. I counter deploy. I counter-deploy with something with a lot of Volcano cannons that can basically wipe that little banner off the table before it gets a chance to move. And to me, that is worth two stratagem points. That initial opening barrage to weaken your opponent can be guaranteed. And although although it doesn't play well with the rest of the rules, it has a place in grander strategy. It basically means you are going to be able to carry out a strategy in that first turn. You can plan to take a pile of vortex missiles on your Reavers who are going to stand back that first turn, but you can focus fire a pile of warp missiles on someone, wreck their day, at which point they're going to charge forward and get too close for their car weaponry to work anyway. So the trade-off's fine. It's interesting, and I don't hate it, um, but it is a little bit different, and it doesn't synergize with the rest of the rules in an easy way. The final trait is a piece of war gear called the Gravitonic Sensor Array. As befitting their status of one of the triad Ferrum Megalus, the Firewasps had access to technology less illustrious Titan Legions did not. These included sensors that enabled the Firewasp Titans to effortlessly track their targets even when obscured. So how this works on the table is that for five points per titan, you get a sensor array. Which means if the opponent is 25% obscured, you get plus one to hit. This is actually really interesting, and it's really interestingly worded. Is a plus one to hit, not a minus one to hit. So if for some reason you're firing a weapon that doesn't care about cover, I'm thinking future weapons here, or barrage traits, you're getting plus one to hit. So on certain builds, this is rather powerful and actually this does synergize really well with the aforementioned stratagem if you have a pile of warlords or with apocalypse missile launchers the cheapest weapon out there and your opponent happens to hide completely in that first turn you could just stay still and first fire every single warlord titan and completely and utterly ruin someone's day with a giant downrange barrage of weaponry even a warbringer titan with um in the correct mana pool, which also allows for barrage traits, you're looking at making those shots a lot more accurate. And that's all really good. And that's aside for the fact that it also works when you're in that 12-inch range band, when you're getting up close and personal, and there's generally always something around blocking you. I mentioned earlier that, you know, Prod- uh, Planet Bowling Ball, these the trait was always going to mean they were the most accurate Titan Legion. Now, with this trait, even in most tables you play Titanicus on, you're going to be hitting really accurately. Um what it doesn't help with is stratagems that will incur penalties, but that's fine. And I've heard arguments with people saying the hunting ore specs, the Legio of Furians get are better. But I don't think that's the case. I wouldn't want the hunting ore specs on my fire moths. Why? Because they don't work within 12 inches. Um, I want my titans to be close. And when you get close up and personal, you also get a higher chance of getting obscured targets. Generally, because you've got other titans obscuring each other, and it always just gets a little bit more intense. At the longer ranges, you usually can position yourself a little better and not get those minuses. It's when you get into that cut and thrust that things get a little bit more tense. And that's pretty cool. It's cool that you can counterbalance that, and you don't have to care about your placement as well. Or more correctly, you can position your titans a little bit more defensively when you get into that cut and thrust. I can get that clean shot on my opponent without exposing myself and that's basically what this uh, war gear does and for the point cost at five points it is almost an auto include. I know in a full mana pool of five titans I'm looking at 75 points and that's not a small amount of points out there I mean that's actually a sizable investment but you know I probably can do without that Knight Banner in support, if my Titans is going to be more accurate. If I can play a bit more defensively. And I like that, and it's really good. And um, it combines so well with the initial rule that it's just, yeah, really accurate shooting. And it's what I wanted from my Titan Legion. So I cannot be happier, to be honest. Okay, let's look through the um, personal traits. I think they're really good, and I'll just run through them pretty quickly. So there are three personal traits. Death Before Dishonour allows you to re-roll all failed to hit rolls if your Titan has suffered critical damage. However, you must repair weapons before any other critical damage in the repair phase. This is really fun, um, but highly situational. If you got to a stage where you're taking critical damage, things are going badly. But it allow you at that point to start rerolling all hits is really useful Given the fact you can start taking negatives to hit if those critical points of damage are coming from the hits to Moderati wounded and the like. It keeps your Titans active for longer and stops the degradation that usually happens to Titans. And that's really good. Foe Slayer, which is your second option, allows you to add a plus one to armor results made from a weapon. You pick one weapon each turn, you get a plus one to to the armor results. So effectively plus one strength. However, if you're fighting Ligio Mortis or Legio Tempestus, you can pick two weapons to increase. So theoretically, both your weapons on a Warhound would be able to be effectively plus one strength when making armor penetration checks. Again, this is really nice and really solid. This is a rule you're always going to see. You put this ability on top of a weapon that has a lot of dice, which typically means that weapon has a lower strength. And you're going to get more benefit out of Wheel oil View and the gravitonic Sensor Arrays. You know, making a Mega Megabolter effectively Strength 5 when attacking armor. Which starts being pretty powerful. And those uh, Macro Gatling guns suddenly start getting Strength 7. And you see where I'm going. It's just a lot more beneficial. Uh, I like it. The third trait is called Eternal Guardian. It's pretty simple again. Once per combat phase, your princeps may re-roll an armor penetration roll, providing they didn't move in the movement phase. It's simple and effective. Obviously, this means your titan has had to stop moving. So this is more of a late-game trait. Really, you've got up the table, you've got yourself in a position where you're going to start fighting your opponent, and now you're just going to start re-rolling those armor penetration rolls. And being able to re-roll that one is really useful. But say you've got an ordnance weapon you're using again, Multiple dice, a lot of the ordnance weapon or multiple dice weaponry. There's macro uh, cannons on the warlord. You know, you can reroll the ones because of um, the ordnance trait, but that two you roll that's going to do nothing. You can reroll that one as well. It allows you to fish for those higher numbers you need a lot more efficiently. It's really solid, but I think I'd still prefer just a plus one strength. I think a plus one strength is going to give you a lot more versatility than being able to reroll an arm penetration roll. But there will be exceptions, and I can see its use. But it is the weakest one of the three. Okay, so that's going to be the end of my rules review of individually. I'm going to go over them all again next week with James, and I've got more thoughts to add. Um, but for now, just in summary, I think they've caught the essence of the Fire Wasps absolutely perfectly. They are a legion that will get stuck in and really hurt you if they get too close to you. But they also have the tools to create a pretty scary gun line. If you take the sensor array, and then the stratagem that allows you to always uh, pass those first fire checks. That first turn barrage can be really scary if you aren't well enough secured. I know they aren't going to reroll ones to hit, but you're going to have to get yourself pretty well in cover to not allow me to be hitting on a 3-plus with my Volcano Cannons in that first turn, let alone my giant barrage of Apocalypse Missile Launchers. A line of Apocalypse Missile Launchers and Volcano Cannon Titans sort of hanging out in 25% cover, positioning you downrange, can unleash hell those first two turns and really weaken you up. And then by the time you get to me and get close, oh yeah, and then I'm going to start rerolling ones to hit. It is annoying. Um, But it does require you coming to battle with all the bells and whistles. This isn't a legio you can go slightly in. If you're not taking that 15-point upgrade on every titan, these Legio rules are going to feel a little off um, because it suddenly becomes all about getting in real close. So, you could run a really aggressive, in your face battle group that is just going to barrel into 12 inches and really hurt. Do, you know, Ferox, get the knife fighting bonuses out and get stuck in. But if you're going to go for a more balanced battle force, you need to be throwing in those sensor arrays because you need to get something to distinguish you from the other Legios at range. And 15 points isn't too much to pay. We talk about that at length next week, and I'll leave that there. Personally, for me, this is great. It's exactly how I play. They play how I want to play, and that's really good. Um, So I look at these with very rose-tinted glasses and look at all the rules and be like, yeah, they're awesome. I can understand the criticism. I think the true messengers do the shooting game so much better they ignore them. That when you start comparing apples to oranges, you know, true messengers are better. A True Messenger versus Ignatum game, I think True Messengers have the advantage. Um, I don't see that coming up much in the lore, which is, I think, why I'm not as worried about it. I think it balances there. Ignatum are a good counter to a lot of traitor lists, which is what they designed. Um, I think they are going to be fun for you and your opponent. They're going to create fun games that get stuck in. Um, I do caution Ignatum players, though. They are very easy to power game. There are a lot of just open bonuses and a lot of ways just to get other bonuses to combine. In my head, as I've been recording this episode, I've now had two long rants where I've just suddenly thought of a broken combination that I know would be very hard to beat. So there is that. Um, but that's the risk with all rules, and I just think it's one of those loose threads. Um, I think, in general, Iconatum are going to be okay. And a, a good legio to play and a good legio to play against just watch it i think there is potential for the rules to be pretty well abused in places so again something for uh, tournament organizers to note when an ignatum player shows up see what else they're going to do watch very carefully ignatum traitor lists i think there are ways to make some really really scary combinations there um particularly uh stratagem based namely the, name the war masters portion uh basically it plays in the first turn uh, just like Guard the Gates, and allows you to reroll any ones to hit in any of the phases of that turn. So it would allow you to unleash a absolute metric ton of high-accurate Apocalypse Missile Launchers at someone. Theoretically, an Extermagus Manipal, um, all with Apocalypse Missile Launchers, could target someone who they can't see, providing they've all got Corridor, and they're outside of 30 inches, so long range, and with sensor arrays, are going to be hitting on a 2 plus rerolling 1s. So they'll take out your shields. And once they're through the shields, they could then excurmagus you to push that strength up to strength 6. Which has a potential to actually start hurting titans. Um, a array of missile launchers from three warlords potentially could destroy an enemy titan with just apocalypse missile launchers if played right. Which is a weird thing to think about, just the way the rules all work. Yeah, anyway. Edge case, edge scenario, and I don't recommend anyone goes out to do it. Because I think your opponent will be wise enough to position themselves out of corridor fairly quickly. But it is a thing. So let's get on to talk about, you know, the hobbying and the collecting. The fun side of the hobby, the stuff we've been able to do during this year of lockdowns. So let's talk about painting Legio Incarnum. Now, for one of those Titan Legios that have been around for a while, and their titans keep showing up in games workshops, how to paint guides and colour panels and art and here and there, which is many of the reasons people fell in love and started collecting this particular Legio, there hasn't been a very consistent paint scheme for it. Early paint schemes had the Titan Legio as a dark red with silver trim with, like, the standard hazard stripe paneling uh, as a sort of accent and that's pretty cool and uh, i like it it was very classic then recent then it evolved to start getting gold trim and the big divide was whether it's silver or gold trim on the titans like big debates on a lot of ink and art painting groups and there wasn't much evidence either way i mean a lot of the recent artwork, especially for the Horus Heresy books, um, the audio drama, Binary Succession, and um, the actual novel where it appears, had Titans with gold trim, and it was actually quite often gold trim with like blue paneling as well in places, which is really interesting. That's like a third color thrown in, and actually then so you got all the primary colors, which is an entirely separate issue. But yeah, and then you start again in the artwork for Titanicus. And the artwork that Titanic has had, had like gold trim, really dark gold trim. In fact, some people would argue that some of the panels were actually black trim. And as well as the hazard stripes, you were getting like this hexagonal bee like structure. And then occasionally some of the um, stripes were actually like a zigzag black, which was pretty cool. And then Warhammer community did their how to paint video. And that went back to the standard hazard stripes and gold trim which kind of for a while enshrined that as being the idea of what Incarnum was. And then Crucible of Retribution came out, and suddenly it's black trim on the colour plates, with no hazard stripes in sight, with, you know, the zigzag yellow and black, and then lots of, like, honeycomb-like motifs all over the body. And that's sort of reflected in the transfer pack we got. We got a lot of the zigzag stripes and transfers. We got the weird honeycombing to go on the side of the volcano cannons in the warlord kit so yeah there's like these three different paint schemes um, of increasing complexity but at the same time none of them kind of say no to the other there's no like real definitive way because you know one community haven't taken down their old video and it was only put out last year so what is the correct answer is the big debate in the community and it can get a little contentious at times. My response to that whole controversy, question mark, question, is that it isn't a controversy. What we are seeing is we are seeing pictures of the Titan Legion throughout the history of the Horus heresy. There are multiple versions of color schemes of every major military force out there. It's said quite a few times in places that where games which talk talk about painting large units, that there is an exact colour scheme. They have an idea what they're going for, but individual units, individual... tanks will have variants of it. It depends, you know, the exact history. And this is especially the case in Titans. Titans have these giant banners, own coat of arms and all that stuff. So what are we to do with all that information? I mean, it's kind of... Yeah. Well... To me, the actual multiple colour schemes and everything tells a story. I think back at the foundation of the Legion, the colour scheme was the standard we saw on the box art of that first edition uh, Adeptus Titanicus. It was red armour, silver trim, hazard stripes. Simple, very mechanicum. I mean, it's archetypical Martian colour schemes. When the Emperor showed up, he started blessing Titans. We know he did that. It's mentioned a few times. I think that's where you start getting the gold trim. The gold trim notates Titans that have been marked out for special service by the Emperor, or because they've been deployed with the custodians, or for some other Imperial business. These are the Imperial Ignatum Titans. The Silver Titans probably signify the Titans that were deployed with the Mechanicum forces, or were on Mars. So what about the black and the blue? Well, I think those... We'll start with the blue paneling, and I will discount it pretty quickly, also artistically. Uh, blue paneling on the Inconartum Titans looks good when done right, but can very easily be done badly because suddenly you're adding another primary colour, and some of your Titans have all three primary colours. It's a bit of a problem. Can If you aren't careful with it, it can look a little cartoony, like, kids' toys. That said, I've seen some people do it fantastically, so I'm not saying that if you put all three primary colours on a Titan, you're doing it wrong. You're just a very good artist who understands shading and all the other necessary steps you have to take to keep it away from looking like a toy. Despite the fact it is a toy, but that's an entirely separate debate. Anyway, um, to explain the blue panelling, though, in the artwork, it's simply that it's a campaign badge. Those titans were clearly on the march. They were, they had some sort of procession. looks like they were being deployed somewhere. So that blue patch probably meant something. Maybe it was the blue badge because of the section of the wall in the Imperial Palace they were defending. Maybe it was a blue patch to represent a crusade they were about to go on. That's my take on it. Now as for the black trim. And actually black panelling. Because black panelling also has shown up in some artwork. And I know it's something I've leaned into a lot on my Titans. I've done a lot of black panelling because I think it looks neat with the reds. Black is a colour of mourning. The Titan iconography that's shown up with the black has only ever shown up with captions talking about Titans in the heresy, usually late heresy, after Mars has been lost. In fact, the description of the Titan in the Crucible of Retribution book talks about how its original banners have all been destroyed by the Dark Mechanicum. This was a Titan that was stationed on Mars and it's lost its homeworld. That Titan and its crew is in mourning for its lost home. It makes sense that the shiny silver that initially represented the Mechanicum has been cleaned away for the Black of Mourning. And to me, that's how it was going to go. My Titans are going to have black panelling and black trim to signify the loss of Mars. In fact, the few Titans I have with a lot of black on them are to represent that they're the only Titan left from a maniple. They're in mourning for their lost comrades. I'm going to have black trim on several of my Titans because they were the Titans that came from Mars. They initially were gold-trimmed, tit- uh, silver-trimmed Titans who've lost their homeworld, so they're now black-trim. I still have gold-trimmed Titans also in my legio because they come from forces that are on deployment for the Emperor. They are there with the Custodian Guard. The Custodians are golden. They get the gold golden, golden idography. And they all work in this unified story. It's a single tale. And then you get the Titans with both. You get Titans with a golden iconography because they had ties to the Emperor, but they also had ties to Mars, and they've lost their silver trim, so they gained the black trim. And I could even make an argument you could have a Titan with silver trim because they still haven't given up on Mars just yet. Uh, it's all very personal down to the individual princep, and probably the machine spirit itself, the greater spirit of the Titan. Is it in mourning, or is it not? Okay, all that said, what about the individual markings? Are we talking hazard stripes? Are we talking about the... Um, bee-like structures on the paneling, or are we talking the zigzag hazard stripes? I think they're all doable. Again, it all depends upon the individual story. To me, the hazard stripes represent a much more mechanic and purist side of a Titan Legion. The um, other stuff sort of show perhaps further changes down the lines of where that Titan's going. I am gonna try on my next warlord to paint in some of the hive-like structure. To me, that sort of represents that the Titan is looking for a home. It is looking for a nest. Again, it's going to be very reflective of the loss of, Mar- the loss of Mars, but also shows that it's willing to defend its home. It is now its home. Its home is with it. I going to have other titans that won't have that marking for its own reasons. Perhaps they're not quite as attached to having formed a new defensive position yet. The styles of hazard striping... Uh, yeah, as I said, if you've got the zigzaggy hazard striping, I think you're a really good artist. Uh, and I will try it, perhaps. Maybe use some of the transfers. But I think it's going to be fairly difficult to use. I probably need to get some micro-solar micro, solar, micro set and look really carefully about how to do it properly. Uh, it looks cool when done right. But on a Warhound, those simple hazard stripes can look incredible, and I just... I'm going to have to do that more, because it's easy to paint and really good fun. So there's that. And that, I think, at the end of the day, is my recommendation to anyone trying to play, paint any Titan, no matter what legio. Paint your Titan so it tells a story. You cannot be wrong... If you're the one who's written the story, providing you are not copying a titan of legend or a titan who's been mentioned in a book. You can always say, oh, yeah, well, the color schemes like this because of blah. And here's the reason. And most people, if you tell them a good story and you have a decent paint scheme, will be incredibly impressed. Even if your paint scheme is subpar, if you've got a really good story, you can make that paint scheme work and make people excited to have that Titan on the table. And pairing the two together goes really well. So don't feel beholden to Games Workshop's paint schemes if you've got a reason to deviate. And if you've deviated from that paint scheme, come up with a reason. It's simple. and doesn't take a huge amount of work. In fact, I am going to state now for the record that if you have a collection of titans and you've deviated from the paint scheme and you feel worried about it and you want to help coming up with a reason, message me. I'm more than happy to sit down with you and help you craft a story. I know crafting stories can be a little bit scary for some people. It's like it's a big bold step they've got to take. I've been doing it with my RPGs for the longest time and I generally have a pretty good idea how to write something that's going to be pretty evocative and pretty quick. Or at least I've got some guidelines to get you there going there. So if you need help just reach out and ask. Or reach out and ask other people around your uh, social group. Someone there will have an idea or have a bit of a desire to be a storyteller and I'm sure together you can work on something fun and it gives you a lot more life for your model. Anyway, Side tangents. I'm going to leave that there in this podcast, but I'm going to move on to talk about some other stuff. So that brings us also to the Exkirmigus Manipul. This Manipul is highly recommended by many folk. Many folk also to say, oh, this is great with Legion Incarnum. And I can see it in theory. You know, you want to get in close and have that weapon that's not going to hit miss because you can reroll that one to hit and you're always going to have a high strength. But yeah. The problem is there is a little disconnect. For a start, Incarnum have no powers to get rid of heat any quicker. So the weakness of the Extermagus manipul isn't mitigated. We don't have any ways to get up the table faster, so the speed of the Warlord isn't mitigated. And also, the Incarnum benefits work best on weapons with multiple dice. High dice power weaponry is where it really comes, to, comes in well. And that's also the weaponry you want to be avoiding with the Extermagus Maniple, because you want the lower dice, because once you pass that dice threshold, you're generating yet more heat. So while I can see it working fairly well, they just don't interlock perfectly. They don't come together to make something absolutely awesome, as I think the Geocrucius and the Extermagus does. Where, like I said, I think the rules really start clicking is those Warhounds and those Reavers. It does push you towards those Light Titans. I keep wanting to come up with ways to bring Warlords in. And while I can do it, it doesn't make the best use of the rules. Outside of those very single edge case scenarios. But that said, I want Warlords in this collection. Warlords are dramatic. They are defensive units and they just have that feel of incarnum. Standing strong, standing at the walls, you want to see that big defensive titan, and that's the Warlord. It isn't the Reaver or the Warhound. They're aggressive little yappy dogs. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting conundrum. So perhaps you just need to do an axiom. The axiom isn't a bad maniple. The axiom does everything you kind of need it to do. As does the Preceptor, uh, the new one from the latest book. Yeah, I don't know. But that's the fundamental problem with Incarnum. They are not a legio with a way to put them on the table. They are a collector's legio. They are a legio with an interesting backstory. One with plenty of space to tell your own tale, because there's plenty of places to talk about them, because they aren't that well-known in depth. But they're an important legio, so you can basically elbow your way into nearly any conflict... And they're a legio that allows you to take any titan. If you want to come to Titanicus and build a large collection of titans, as I do, um, Incarnum is a great way forward. You aren't just going to be collecting warhounds. You aren't just going to be doing reavers. You're going to do everything. And you can play everything on the table with a pretty good story. So we move to the section of the show, which would usually be one of my favorite sections to talk about what I would do if I was to collect this lead show, And I'll go through and I'll make lists, I'll make shopping lists. I do a lot of stuff on the back that never makes it to the podcast where I imagine this giant collection I'm going to paint and the like. But with this legio, I already have. It's downstairs sitting in my display cabinets right now. I've got a lead show. I've already collected it and I've already made most of my plans and written most of these stories. And I could talk to you for a very long time about what I did and why I did it. And what I'm going to do in the future. But I'm going to save that for another day. Because I think that is a long conversation. And it is something I do want to do. Because I think it gives insight to my particular style of playing the game. And yeah, it would just be fun for me to talk about. So I'm going to do that in the final episode of the series. A little bit of bonus content there. So for the remainder of the show, to close this show up. I'm going to talk about ways I would look at collecting this legio if I was to start over. Top of that list is rebuilding my Corsair Manipal. I love playing my Corsair Manipal. It is a very flexible man- manifold and probably one of the best manifolds in the game. I think it synergizes immensely well with the rules of this legio. Using the sensor upgrades gives me the edge to allow myself to cons- consistently position myself where the opponent's going to have trouble shooting me while I'm able to hit him easier. So also a- the reaver is a titan that likes getting close up. Again, synergizes well but it also does allow me to run lists where I can sit back and shoot a little bit, which is useful if I run the dual volcano cannon build, which I love. I know other people don't, but I do. Anyway, the Ferox uh, knife fighting style is also pretty good. Getting in close with some warhounds, getting in really close and mixing it up. In fact, the warhound itself is a pretty good match. The titan We'll be able to get close really quickly. And when you're there, you'll be able to mix it up with some weaponries that generally packs a high amount of dice. But I have concerns with running just a Warhound heavy list. This legio doesn't come with much that gives you that much in bonus for protection. And the sensor array is a price per titan. So it rewards you best for taking a titan where you can put more weapons on it. It's not a price per weapon, so that Titan that rocks three weapon mountings brings in a lot more bang for your buck than your Warhound, which again leans towards the Reaver. I think the Warbringer doesn't really fit very well with this particular show, unless you go really defensive, as I said earlier. So perhaps if you were to want to bring in a Warbringer, you need to be looking at the Arcus Manipul. And perhaps an Arcus Maniple of two Warhounds, a Warbringer, and then a Corsair of three Reavers would be a pretty solid collection. You've got the potential of putting together a pretty good defensive force with the Arcus sitting at the back, and perhaps another Reaver also moving on that back table line. And then you've got the rest of the force being a couple of Warhounds and a couple of Reavers to push up the table pretty aggressively and make better use of the bonuses. And yeah, I think this would be a pretty good way to run a very aggressive and defensive force. I think it captures both elements of the Legio very well. And although I would start my collection with, say, a Corsair Manipal, I probably would look very quickly to putting in some Warhounds and Warlords to allow me to do the Axiom, or allow me to do the Xcermagus, or anything else I've just talked about in this random meander. Because it's all got a place in the game, and there's that. Um, before I finish up, there is one other thing I want to touch on. And that is, could you play this Legio as a traitor or a legion? I think the answer is yes, and I've already touched on it already. There is always space to play someone on the other side of the lines. They make a big deal in many of the books. Though, actually, that big deal is becoming less of a big deal as we move forward. Like, it's an idea perhaps they're regretting a bit. But anyway, a Titan Legion theoretically can be both traitor, loyalist, or even Black Shield. Legion Incarnum are clearly a very loyal Titan Legion, and a majority of them are with the Emperor. But I think you could make a story that, you know, some that got sent off to some backwater somewhere on some defensive mission could have been swayed they could now be following the Warmaster for a weird reason. Now, probably those particular titans may have renamed themselves to differentiate themselves from the rest of their Titan Legion. But you could use the rules very easily. And I think the rules are, as I said, pretty good with the traitors. And if I was to do a traitor ignatum list and make it purposely traitor rather than just playing them as traitor, I think there are a few things I would do to really sell it. The first of all is the trim. We've already described the trim as going through a variety of alterations throughout um, its history, both out of game and in game, and I think it would give you an avenue to do something different. I would look at doing the trim in a odd colour, a colour to signify loyalty to the war Master or to the Ruinous powers. Obviously, a dark brass springs to mind. So you take the initial gold and you switch it out for a dark brass, and it will look pretty good alongside the red. I mean, it's a standard cornate trope, but it's pretty doable. I'd also dull down the tones of all the reds to make it a much darker colour. Probably highlight with some um, lighter reds, as you'd probably draw on some runes. Instead of the uh, yellow crisscrossing for the uh, hives... Again, something a bit more chaotic probably would be a good idea. But the thing I would look at doing painting wise is inverting the hazard stripes. Instead of doing black and yellow, I would look at switching the colors out. Maybe not black and red, because obviously red's going to be another common common color, but perhaps you could go black and orange or um, predominantly orange, but with like white lines within it, drawing a sort of more of a fire motif. I definitely think that there's some plays there. Um, You can keep it looking very wasp-like by switching to the... moving your colours away from the standard yellows towards a more of an orange. I think that's probably a pretty good move to do. And again, distincts them out as being something similar but different. Um, Iconographies and the like, I would keep them pretty well unmutated. This wouldn't be a trait of force that would go heavy mutated. It would be more like, you know, the early... um, Ligio Mortis. These are guys who have switched because of the Warmaster. I could see that really being the case. Like A particular couple of poles could switch because their loyalties have switched. or as their loyalties haven't switched, they just followed a certain direction of the binary succession. It's simple and easy story to tell. And you would put together something that would look pretty awesome. A lot of Eyes of Horus and the like. Yeah. <laughs> okay so i think that's it for the show thank you for bearing with me i know this has been a long show it's been even longer for me recording it i've shot off on numerous tangents that i've cut and thrown on the cutting room floor um i've really enjoyed talking about incantum all day today uh recording of this show t- has taken me about five hours so i hope the content is good and not too choppy as i cut it down um thank you so much um thank you for your continued support Uh, please rate and review the show share this podcast with your friends and all that jazz and i'll see you next week when i sit down and have a conversation with james about the legio incarnum and finish up this deep dive thank you again for listening to another episode of the god engine cast a podcast dedicated to discussing the Adeptus Titanicus game produced by games workshop this show was written, recorded, and edited by Martin Emery. This podcast is completely unofficial and in no way endorsed by Games Workshop Limited. No challenge to any trademarks or copyrights have been intended. All rights are reserved by the respective owners. If you have any questions of the show, please email me at god.engine.cast@gmail.com gmail.com or reach out to me through Twitter or Facebook. So until next time, I wish you all good fortune.